Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? We are continuing our series of episodes about the history of social networks. This one will be the fourth one in that series. So in our first episode, we covered some of the really early examples of social networks like SixDegrees.com and High Five. Uh, in episode two, we talked about how MySpace became the dominant player in social networks until Facebook swept up from behind and overtook it. And then in the third episode, we talked about Google's early attempt at a social network, aka Orkut. And we also talked about Bebo. And I covered some networks that are related to social networks, but maybe not a full social network on their own, like YouTube and Reddit. And just as a reminder, I am tackling these kind of one network at a time. So while the episodes are organized chronologically in regards to when these networks were founded, I'm not going like year by year. This isn't like, and now we're covering 2010 to 2014 because 
you would have to jump back and forth across so many different stories. It would be impossible to keep them all sorted. It would be Madness or Sparta or, you know, one of those two. Anyway, we're up to 2006. And that year would see the birth of a microblogging service that would be founded early on uh, and then launch publicly in the summer. And this microblogging service would end up taking advantage of the the technology of things like short messaging system, that kind of thing. And I am, of course, talking about Jaiku. Gotcha, didn't I? Maybe. Anyway, it might have sounded like I was talking about Twitter, you know, being founded in 2006 and launching publicly in that summer. But technically, a couple of engineers in Finland founded Jaiku one month before Twitter would emerge. As to who was working on what first, I don't know. But they weren't aware of each other at the time. They couldn't have been because Twitter was not a publicly known entity yet. Uh, the Finnish team built their tool with a specific phone operating system in mind, the Symbian operating system, specifically on the Nokia S60 platform. Now, keep in mind, 2006 is still a year before the iPhone would launch. And while smartphones would take time to get some traction here in the US, over in Finland, Nokia and the Symbian OS already had a leg up. Jaiku's creators figured that young people were starting to do this crazy thing called texting. And they'd also taken up the practice of journaling online using blogs. So why not combine the two and build an application that would allow for really concise blog posts, microblogging, in other words. And it would work on mobile devices so that you could post your thoughts right when you had them and maybe have no filter. Uh, many of the same concepts that Twitter would embrace were also present in Jaiku. Now, there was also a web-based component. So you could go to the Jaiku webpage and access your account there rather than using the phone interface if you preferred. And I suspect that because the service launched overseas, it didn't really get as much attention here in the United States as Twitter would. Also, the engineers would later say that the S60 platform was, quote, impossible to develop for, end quote. It did still gain attention, however, and the folks who heard about Jaiku got into it pretty quickly and used it a lot. And while the team had been hoping for this kind of success, the rapid adoption created some new challenges for the small group of engineers, because now they had to figure out how to scale the service to meet demand and they were having lots of performance issues as a result because it's expensive. It's something that's really hard for a small team to do. And it soon became clear that they were going to be completely overwhelmed. And that's what, uh, when something that appeared to be a lifeline showed up. Uh, in the long run, it wasn't a lifeline, but at the time it seemed that way. So in late 2007, Google bought Jaiku, perhaps sensing that Maybe the company Google could push Jaiku to greater heights and challenge the now trendy Twitter, which we will talk about in a second, because by 2007, Twitter was quite the phenomenon. Now, unfortunately, the same thing happened with Jaiku that we've seen happen in countless other examples of Google-acquired companies and services. Google didn't really know how to promote Jaiku or to develop Jaiku, and it failed to gain any real traction while Twitter continued to grow in popularity. 
In 2009, Google decided to stop actively developing Jaiku as a company, but turned it into an open source project. But even that move only kept Jaiku around for a couple more years. In 2011, Google announced it was going to kill off Jaiku at the start of the following year. And in January 2012, Jaiku gasped its last breaths and then was heard no more, as was predicted by the Mayan long count calendar. Yes, that's what the 2012 stuff was. All no, not really. I'm, I'm being facetious, obviously. But yeah, it was gone. Jaiku did not stand the test of time. But let's get back to 2006, because that is also the year that Twitter would launch. As I said a little bit earlier, it launched a month after Jaiku did. Well, after Jaiku was founded. Technically, Jaiku didn't launch publicly until July, which was after Twitter had its public launch. So I've talked a lot about Twitter's history over the years, especially this year. So we're going to keep this really bare bones and relatively fast. I mean, you know me, nothing is fast, but as fast as I go anyway. So once upon a time, there was a company called Odeo, and this company developed directories for stuff like podcasts. The idea was, how can we make podcasts easier to discover and to subscribe to? Because early, early, early on in the days of podcasts, you kind of had to hunt down the RSS feed and subscribe to it. There was not like a whole lot of easy options for, you know, doing this without hunting and pecking. Uh, of course, this is in the very, very early days of podcasts. Now, the brief story of Odeo is a pretty interesting one. It's complete with drama around who started the company versus who got, you know, the credit for being a founder and lots of things like that. But that's for another time. But by 2006, Odeo was struggling to be relevant. Uh, the main problem was that shortly after Odeo became a thing, Apple began to support podcasts and incorporate podcast subscriptions into iTunes. And, you know, we even called them podcasts because of the Apple iPod. That kind of gives you an idea of how dominant Apple was in the space and still is to a great extent. So Odeo quickly found itself looking for ways to keep investors on board because the company was really struggling with its main product. Now, a side project in Odeo was also developing. This project was to create a messaging service that would let one person post a short message via SMS or short messaging service to their own timeline of posts. And it would also send it out to their contacts or followers. And it became a form of microblogging journaling in very short 140-character messages. That character limit was because of the limitations of SMS itself. The project leaders, among them Noah Glass, decided to call the service Twitter, but there were no vowels. It was T-W-T-T-R. Now, of course, this would become Twitter, T-W-I-T-T-E-R, and it launched in March 2006. Jack Dorsey created the first profile on the platform, and sent out the first tweet, which read, just set up my Twitter. And he spelled it the, the no vowels way. So worlds are turned on such tweets. So that's March 2006, right? But Twitter would launch to the public a few months later in July. Actually, July is the same month that Jaiku would launch to the public too. So both services hit the public at the same time. But keep in mind, Jaiku is launching in Finland and didn't get nearly the same amount of coverage as Twitter did here in the United States. 
Ev Williams, Biz Stone, and Jack Dorsey decided to purchase up most of Odeo in October of 2006. They bought it back from the various stakeholders and investors and were consolidating ownership and pivoting the business away from podcasting, where clearly Apple was going to dominate. And instead, they were going to focus on this new kind of social network and messaging service. The service grew over the course of 2006, but it really began to take off the following March in 2007. So essentially a year after Dorsey sent out that first tweet, Twitter itself would become famous. It was the year that Twitter had gone to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. It's a a big festival. It's got lots of different components to it. Like there's a film component and a music component, but there's also a tech or interactive component in South by and South by is how some people refer to it. Uh, I always feel weird calling it South by. I don't think I'm cool enough. That's the problem is that really cool people can call it South by and sound like, you know, they're not total dweebs. But if I try and say cool things, my dweebishness comes to the surface and it's undeniable. And I'm cool with that, by the way, I'm not, I'm not upset. (laughs) I just know who I am. Anyway, uh, it was seen as sort of the cool conference in the tech space. You know, it's where the young startups would show off what they could do while rubbing elbows with, you know, the money. And uh, South by was leaning more toward trendy and fashionable, much more than larger tech industry conferences like CES, which were still important, but they weren't seen as being like, Again, you're going to think I'm terrible because I'm going to use terrible antiquated language, but, you know, they didn't seem hip. Anyway, the Twitter team set up displays around South by Southwest that showed the latest tweets that were sent across the microblogging service. And I'm sure you know this. Folks really like it when they see themselves or their words up on screens. It gives them a real kick. So for more proof of that, just go to any big sporting event in the United States and watch as the Jumbotron shows video of fans in the stands. They go bonkers for that kind of thing. So Twitter was declared the best startup at South by Southwest and thousands of people signed on. Moreover, the people who attend South by Southwest tend to fall into the category of influencer. So these folks had their own fan bases, which also began to join the platform. Twitter proved to be really popular as it seemed to give folks a more personal insight into the lives of folks that they liked, whether those folks were close friends or, you know, like a celebrity crush. Twitter spun off to become its own company in 2007, and Jack Dorsey was the first CEO. Dorsey would serve as CEO another time later on in Twitter's history, actually. But in the summer of 2007, Twitter began to see some emergent behavior that would become foundational for the service. And I'm talking about the hashtag. So that's the pound sign, that little crosshatch sign. The hashtag, when used in front of a name or a keyword, would make it easier to search Twitter for that specific topic to see what folks were saying about it. Because Twitter wasn't really designed to make large conversations a possibility right? Like it's hard to participate in a conversation on Twitter uh, beyond a back and forth with just two people. So some users came up with this idea of using a hashtag in front of a key word, like what the conversation is actually about, so that people could do a search for that hashtag word 
and pull up the actual relevant tweets. Tweets that did not have the hashtag in front of the word, those wouldn't get tagged, right? Those wouldn't get pulled up in search results. So this made it easier to look for specific kinds of content. And again, this was just something that emerged through user behavior, but over time, Twitter would adopt that and some other user behaviors and incorporate those as features. In 2008, Jack Dorsey stepped down as Twitter's CEO and co-founder Evan Williams would take a turn. But don't worry, we'll be back with Jack Dorsey in a little bit. Before we do that, though, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. 
Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, we're back. In 2009, Twitter got the first account to hit 1 million followers. That actually was a kind of a race. Uh, The account belonged to Ashton Kutcher, the celebrity, who campaigned hard to be the first to hit 1 million because CNN was closing in on a million followers right around the same time. These days, you can find lots of accounts that have many millions of followers. But keep in mind, you know, this event where we hit the first 1 million followed account was in 2009. It was just a few years after launch. And really, folks outside of the tech space hadn't really found out much about Twitter at all. Like, they didn't know that it was a thing. It was really the tech space that was aware of it. And then a few folks on the periphery of tech. This would change when Oprah set up her own Twitter account on an episode of her daytime talk show, which led to thousands more people signing up. I should also add, Twitter in the United States is seen as a pretty big deal, but it's not as big in other regions. There are other social networks that actually are used more frequently than Twitter in those cases. Uh, I say this because even as someone who is on Twitter, I often forget that it's not as widely used as you might think. And while you might feel that that certain sentiments that are really popular on Twitter uh, have widespread appeal, you're really looking at a kind of slice of the overall population. I say this because it means that if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, your perspective could be skewed so that you think that more people think a specific way when that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I know I've been guilty of falling into that trap myself, so just thought I would mention that here. Now, it's also good to remember that Twitter's early years coincided with the growth of the consumer smartphone. Like I said, Smartphones had been kind of a thing in certain parts of the world, but here in the United States, they just were not the domain of the general consumer. It was pretty much your executive on the go who had a smartphone, and that was it. Until Apple debuted the iPhone and made smartphones sexy. And then they had a a really disruptive effect on the web in general. Services like Twitter could be repackaged as an app, And this really helped boost user numbers as well. Now, in these early years, Twitter didn't really have a means to generate revenue. Uh, It was dependent upon influxes of cash from investors. But in 2010, the company introduced promoted tweets. So then an account could pay to have a message promoted so that it would show up on the feeds of hundreds of thousands of Twitter users. Even if those users didn't follow that specific account, they would see the tweet. We started seeing more brands engage with Twitter as a way to promote themselves and their products, as well as to interact with customers. And we also saw the beginning of folks using Twitter as a way to fast track issues to get them resolved with customer service of various companies. I saw so many tweets directed at airlines. Oh, and those early years would also be when we would see the famous fail whale a lot. So this image created by artist Cooney, a.k.a. KA-92, has the official title of Lifting a Dreamer, and it shows a flock of little birds holding onto strings that serve as a kind of harness for a happy whale. 
This was the image that greeted users when Twitter's services were kaput, which happened frequently enough that if you were using Twitter back in those days, you undoubtedly saw the fail whale at some point or another. Twitter users would sometimes push Twitter beyond capacity, particularly during really popular live events where everyone was trying to give their hot take on what was going on at the same time. In 2010, Evan Williams stepped down as CEO in order to focus more on product development. Uh, he would leave the company no, several years later. He actually completely divorced himself from Twitter by like 2017. So in his place, Dick Costolo became the new CEO. In 2013, Twitter would transition from being a private company to a publicly traded one. And so it held its IPO or initial public offering on November, uh, well, in November of 2013. I don't have the specific date in front of me, but not everything was going super smoothly for Twitter, even as it was making this transition. Uh, for one thing, the platform was starting to get a reputation for abusive users. Uh, people were complaining that Twitter failed to handle abuse properly. Like it, it wasn't responding quickly enough. In fact, a little bit later, it was it got so bad that the CEO copped to it in an internal me memo. Uh, Costello said that Twitter had failed to handle trolls and abuse and as a result had lost users in the process. Now, this was around the time of Gamergate, which was really a harassment campaign conducted mainly online, but also in other ways. And while Twitter would see quite a bit of action during Gamergate, the real battles were being fought elsewhere online and in the real world. But lots of folks in the gaming industry, particularly women who dared to be so bold as to work professionally in the field, found themselves the targets of abuse. In the summer of 2015, Dick Costolo stepped down as CEO, and hey, Jack Dorsey came back as CEO. You know, the first CEO of Twitter, one of the co-founders. And Dorsey remained in charge of Twitter until the fall of 2021, when he would resign and the former CTO, Parag Agrawal, would take over. And Agrawal would lead the company until a certain tech billionaire would really shake things up. That tech billionaire was, of course, Elon Musk. He made waves in the spring of 2022, though it feels like it was an eternity ago at this point, uh, by announcing his intention to acquire Twitter. First, he purchased a significant percentage of, of shares in the company. Then he declined an invitation to join the company's board of directors because he learned that if he did that, it would prevent him from being able to acquire even more stake in the company. Then he said he wanted to buy the company, and he started going about to secure the funding for it. Then Musk reconsidered and decided he wanted out of the deal, but at that point he had already committed to it. There was no easy way to back out. Twitter went to court to force Musk to go through with the acquisition. Bias. Gosh darn it, you're legally bound to. And finally, in the fall of 2022, Musk actually did purchase Twitter. Then Musk fired like all the leadership at Twitter and half of the employees, then another quarter of the employees left the company. And that's kind of where Twitter is today. Musk is aiming to transform Twitter into what he calls Twitter 2.0. And uh, obviously that is a super fast, super high level treatment of Twitter. We could talk about so much more, but honestly, we kind of have, particularly throughout this year. 
So I thought I would leave this here for now, but if people want me to do like an honest to goodness, deep dive on the history, the evolution, the influence of Twitter, let me know. Um, and I guess I can do that, but that'll, that's almost a mini series on its own because it's just Twitter. While again, while it's reach is not as big as the way a lot of people think, uh, has been incredibly important, particularly here in the United States, uh, but also in other parts of the world, like in, in Egypt, but we'll save that for some other time. If y'all want me to talk more about it, some of you are probably sick of hearing about Twitter. So, Hey, why don't we talk about something else? So that same year that, that Twitter and Jaiku launched in 2006 saw the launch of yet another social networking slash microblogging site. But this one was called Tumblr. I mean, it launched in private beta toward the end of 2006. It would become a publicly accessible social network the following year in 2007. David Karp, who turned 20 in 2006, dude, anyway... He was behind Tumblr. He had already established himself as a web developer and tech enthusiast by then. Like when I looked into his background, because I really didn't know much about David Karp. I didn't know much about Tumblr uh, apart from being somewhat familiar with it as a platform. When I looked into his background, I was just so astonished and humbled because holy cow, this guy, by the time he was 20, had accomplished so much. So he creates this site along with Marco Arment. I don't mean to diminish Marco's uh, contributions. And the whole idea was to give a place where users could create profiles and write what were called tumble logs. So these are short form blogs, uh, sometimes longer than tweets, but shorter than what you would typically find in a regular blog. And Tumblr gave tools to users to let them incorporate all kinds of multimedia stuff like photos and audio clips and videos and even things like chat logs. You could just post those directly into a Tumblr feed right from the user interface. So it was really streamlining that process so that you could create a really engaging and interesting Tumble log about whatever it is that you wanted to write about. You know, maybe it's a journal about your own experiences. Maybe it's about something you really are passionate about, whatever the case may be. So users had a few options when it came to designing the look of their feed. They had a lot of uh, default options, or they could actually shell out some real-world money to purchase a pre-made theme from Tumblr, kind of like a, you know, a premier theme. And like Twitter, Tumblr let users follow accounts that they found interesting so that each user had a curated experience based upon their own preferences. Now, one thing was very different with Tumblr, and that was that Tumblr posts didn't feature a comment section. So you could not comment on someone else's post. Carp had seen how comments could become a, a breeding ground for abuse, and he really wanted to avoid that. So users were not given the option to comment on posts. Alternatively, however, they could choose to reblog someone else's post. And in the reblog, they could include their own commentary. So while you might not be able to leave a comment on one of my posts and write, you're a jerk face, you could reblog one of my posts and write, this guy is a jerk face as your commentary. That would work. Words can hurt. 
Tumblr's emphasis on multimedia really kind of set it apart from other platforms at the time, and it became a place where fandoms would coalesce around various pieces of pop culture. Uh, very active communities around fan fiction and fan theory and things that are in that realm. Like, really, when you use the word fan, you know it's short for fanatic. Fanaticism really was playing out on Tumblr. You would see, like, entire communities grow up around specific theories and wish fulfillment for certain characters in pop culture to get together, that kind of thing. The whole brony culture, which uh, was a male identifying people who are fans of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, that all started on Tumblr. So you had these kind of micro communities that were really passionate about their specific area of focus. Tumblr was pretty popular when, in 2013, Yahoo came a-calling. And we've talked about Yahoo already in this series, because that's the same company that came around and acquired Flickr a few years earlier. Yahoo shelled out a cool billion dollars for Tumblr. That's billion with a B. David Karp stayed on as CEO for the time being, but unfortunately for Yahoo and for Tumblr, that popularity didn't really translate into profitability. And in 2016, Yahoo actually did a write-down of that acquisition of more than $700 million. Yikes, that's essentially Yahoo saying, yeah, we paid way too much for this asset. When Verizon bought Yahoo in 2017, because as Qui-Gon Jinn reminds us, there's always a bigger fish, Tumblr, like Flickr, was shuffled underneath a parent company called Oath, O-A-T-H. In 2018, Tumblr made a change that had a dramatic effect. See, I talked about fandoms and stuff, but one thing I did not mention is that Tumblr was also a really popular site for posting material of a more adult nature. Whether it was fan fiction, illustrations, photographs, videos, some users relied on Tumblr to share material that was a bit too hot for Oath. So Tumblr would make a change that would have an enormous impact on the site and its followers. But before we get into that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 
if you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, so I'm sure all of you could at least guess where this was going if you didn't know already. Tumblr, when faced with this issue of adult content proliferating across the site, which, by the way, made it very hard to work with advertisers, right? Because advertisers don't want their ads showing up next to illustrations that depict uh, erotic uh, liaisons between Captain Kirk and Darth Vader or whatever. So Tumblr passed a new policy banning adult content on the site and usage plummeted by about 30%. That's a lot. When you say, hey, no more porn, and you lose a third of your traffic, that definitely tells you something about how your users were using your platform. Now that brings us up to 2019. So at this point, Tumblr is wallowing under oath, which now that I actually think about it, that that came out a way that was different from what I intended. Not wallowing under oath, but wallowing under the company called Oath. And it continued to struggle. And at this point, David Karp had already left the company. He actually did that in 2017. And Oath ended up selling Tumblr off to another company called Automatic, which in turn is kind of connected to WordPress, the publishing platform. And the price tag of Tumblr when it was sold in 2019 was $3 million. Y'all, if you've been following this series, you know, like, 
there have been some notable cases where companies were bought for massive amounts and sold for a tiny percentage afterwards. Like MySpace was something like $580 million that News Corp bought it for and then sold it for like $35 million. And, you know, we've had other examples where something was bought for like $900 million and then sold for $10 million. But this was bought for a billion dollars and then sold off for $3 million. Yikes. Huge drop in value. But importantly, Tumblr did not die. It also didn't change that much. Uh, leadership decided to really focus on how Tumblr allows users to choose how they post and how they consume content. And users began to return to the platform, though there's still a ban on adult content there. So not all of them did. Now, something else that sets Tumblr apart from its competitors is that the site follows a chronological ordering system for posts, with the most recent posts being at the top. You do not get an algorithm shuffling everything around so that you see what the algorithm thinks will keep you there longer. That is different from Twitter. It's different from Facebook. And you might notice, if you've ever been on Facebook or Twitter, that the posts you're looking at are all out of order chronologically. Tumblr passed on that particular approach, which I certainly appreciate. I think a lot of users much prefer having a reverse chronological ordering of content, and you just keep on scrolling down until you reach the point where you're like, oh, I've seen this before, now I'm all caught up. Tumblr is also not as dominated uh, by brands and influencers as, say, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are. It has more of a community feel to it than other platforms. Uh, now, I'm not saying Tumblr is perfect. Uh, in fact, I haven't really used Tumblr very much myself at all. But I do think it is a breath of fresh air if you felt lost in a sea of influencers, algorithms, brands promoting themselves, and that kind of thing. But uh, if you're tired of drama, Tumblr might not be a solution to that. Funny little side note, I actually decided to log into Tumblr for the first time in years while writing this. And one of the top things to populate in the trending tab, which is where it dumped me, I didn't realize that at first. I'm looking and I'm like, I don't recognize any of these accounts. Did I follow all of these back when I was actually on Tumblr years and years ago? But one of the things I saw was a, uh, a post about safety tips for new witches, which I thought was funny. Several of my friends consider themselves to be witches. Uh, that actually really tickled me to see this. I was like, does Tumblr know who my friends are? But then I realized, oh no, I'm in the trending tab. Once I popped over to the For You tab, uh, the, the posts were fewer and further between and they were all very techy. So that was like, oh, okay, no, this is, this is where I left off. All right, next up, we've got a company created by some ex-Googlers. So Brett Taylor and Jim Norris had worked on Google Maps before they struck out on their own to work on their own idea at a venture capital firm called Benchmark Capital, which had its own kind of incubator program. So their idea was to bring together in one place all the different social network activity of a single user so that you could catch up on a person's activities no matter where they were posting. Two other ex-Googlers, Sanjeev Singh and Paul Bukite, uh, whose name I'm sure I have completely mispronounced, so I apologize for that. They helped build Gmail back in the day. Well, they ended up joining on this project as well, and the tool became FriendFeed. It could aggregate 
social network activity across more than 20 different platforms when it launched, and even more as time went on. So that included stuff like Facebook and Twitter, but it also included stuff like Netflix and YouTube and Last.fm and Reddit and things like that nature. So on FriendFeed, users could like posts and they could leave comments, much as you would on Facebook later on, but you could also see activity across all these different things. If, if a user activated all these platforms on their, their feed, anytime they would post at any of those sites, FriendFeed would aggregate it and pull it into that feed as well. So you'd have like this consolidated feed, which made it interesting for folks like me where I would post variations of the same thing on different platforms. And so on friend feed, you would get like multiple versions of essentially the same message, but it would be tailored to whatever platform I was going to. So for example, I might make a longer post on Facebook to promote, say, a, a podcast episode, but on Twitter, it'd be a much shorter message. Meanwhile, friend feed, you'd be like, Jonathan just can't shut up about this podcast episode he did. But let's say you've got a friend who's really active on numerous social networks. So instead of having to go place to place to keep up with this friend, you know, all right, well, have they posted new YouTube videos? Have they been active on Reddit? You would just subscribe to FriendFeed and you would get kind of a fire hose of all the content they were posting at different places, assuming that they enabled those platforms when they were joining FriendFeed. So the number of supported services grew and it became really impressive from that kind of perspective. But the problem was it didn't really fit in anywhere. The UI felt kind of like a hybrid between Twitter and Facebook. It never quite took off. Plus in 2009, Facebook itself decided to acquire FriendFeed. Facebook would continue to operate FriendFeed for several more years, but in 2015, it officially pulled the plug and the aggregator went dark. All right, let's go back to our timeline. Uh, in 2008, we got Plurk. So at this point, Twitter and Jaiku had both been out for a couple of years, and Plurk was another 140-character limit microblogging service that later would expand up to 210 characters. But Plurk's UI was different. You know, Twitter and a lot of other social networks would arrange their messages vertically, in roughly reverse chronological order, although, as we've said, algorithms would change the order quite a bit depending upon what was being used at the time. But on the Plurk website, messages are organized horizontally along a timeline, and the leftmost Plurks represent the most recent messages, and as you go to the right, you get to the older and older messages. This company was founded in Toronto with co-founders Danny Lin and Alvin Woon. Now, the name Plurk has a few different meanings. One is a combination of the words people and lurk, Plurk. Another is the combination of play and work. And yet another is an acronym, which is Peace, Love, Unity, Respect, and Karma, Plurk. Like other services, on Plurk you can follow other people and you can read their timelines, you can upload photos, you can share links, you can import YouTube videos, that sort of thing. For a while, Plurk had something called qualifiers, which was sort of like a, a menu of words that would let you quickly use them those words to make a message. So you could use a word like loves or hates or likes or wishes and... You could do this to craft a message. And those words had a highlight to them. So like the word loves obviously was associated with the color red. 
hates was associated with the color black. So you would very quickly be able to just glance at a message and you would see one of these highlighted words and you think, oh, I get the gist. Jonathan's mad about something. Again, I'm not even going to bother reading this, which I think was a very useful tool for people who followed me. Not that different from how Facebook would incorporate moods. Like you would see that on Facebook posts for a while. I don't know if people still use it. I haven't been on Facebook in, in ages, so I don't know if people still use moods or not, or if it even is still a thing. Anyway, users could also respond to Plurk messages. They could leave comments on a, a post. And it was way easier to follow a conversation on Plurk than it was at Twitter at the time anyway. Twitter had really yet to introduce threaded messages and uh, it was not easy to follow along and read responses to tweets. So it, it'd be really tough to kind of figure out where a conversation was going on Twitter if you were not a direct part of it. But on Plurk, it was way easier. You would just click on the relevant comment and then, or or Plurk, and you would see all the comments below. So you could just follow the conversation and take part of it uh, that way. It was really easy. Plurk also introduced karma, so folks could award karma. They saw stuff they liked. Doing certain actions would get you karma, like if you added a photo to your profile, that got you karma. And receiving karma meant that you would be able to do, you know, to access certain features like special emoticons that otherwise were not available. You know, or being able to assign a title to your timeline if you had enough karma. Around 2013, Alvin Woon relocated to Taiwan. He took Plork with him. The service never got a ton of love here in the West. Like, you know, there were people who used it, but it really wasn't popular. But it did have a steady user base over in Asia, and particularly in Taiwan. So the company got a round of Series A funding in 2013 as well. And it is still around today. You can actually go to Plurk.com and make yourself an account if you like. I actually have one. I have posted maybe like a dozen times since I first made the account way back in, I don't know, 2010 or something like that. I don't know when I made my Plurk account, but <laughs> I haven't posted to it very much. It didn't stick with me the way Twitter did for a very long time. Okay, that's enough for today. Uh, I don't want to go super long with this episode. We've got a few more we're going to cover before we conclude the history of social networks. Uh, we've got some ones that we need to chat about, like Google Plus, I think is an important one to talk about because it really kind of illustrates some mistakes that Google made in the process of trying to create another social network. And there are a few other examples that we can talk about. But obviously, like we've hit most of the really big ones, at least the big ones in the West. Uh, there are some that are really big in other parts of the world, like in China and in Russia. And I'm sure I have listeners in places where they're thinking, hey, you're not really covering the ones that are popular here. And to that, I apologize. Um, but, I, you know, I just I just drew the line to the ones that were really big or known at least here in the West and not, uh, you know, the ones that, that people had less contact with over here. Maybe in the future, I'll do an episode where I focus on some of these other social networks that are almost unknown here in the United States. But, um, I, I, I'm already four episodes into this series. And if I kept on doing it, it would probably be like eight episodes long. And I, I, I still have to do my end of the year wrap up, folks. So yeah, to that end, if you have suggestions for topics I should cover on TechStuff, including 
any big news tech news items from 2022 that you think should be included in my end of the year wrap up, please get in touch with me. You got a couple of ways of doing that. One is you can download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. It's free to use. Navigate over to Tech Stuff. You just put Tech Stuff in the little search field. Pop up over to the podcast. Over on the podcast page, you'll see there's a little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. And uh, if you even like, you can let me know and I can play it in a future episode. But I won't do it unless you tell me to. Or if you prefer, you can use Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to Brand New on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.